Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how are we still making discoveries at Newgrange? When you hear that long droughts in Ireland have exposed remarkable archaeological sites around the country, it kind of makes a bit of sense in your head. And then you hear a guy with a drone discovered something extraordinary, not something new, but something really, really old that we never knew was there. Then this is repeated again this month by experts working near Newgrange. And then you kind of have to stop and think, hang on, surely we'd have found everything by now. That area around the Boyne is a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site, so surely we know what's in there. How can we still be finding this stuff? And because I say things like this stuff, I'm extremely glad to see the three brilliant women sitting in studio with me right now. We have an incredible lineup on The Explainer today as we are joined for the first time by the Journal.ie's editor and archaeology buff, Susan Daly, as well as the editor of Archaeology Ireland, Dr. Sharon Green, and Dr. Jessica Smith, who is a lecturer and assistant professor at UCD's School of Archaeology. You are all very, very, very welcome. Susan, I'm going to turn to you first because we'll need some assistance to get through the next 20 minutes. By we, I mean me and maybe some of our listeners out there without feeling a little dumb or that we should have paid more attention in junior search history. So to kick off our glossary for this episode, when we say Neolithic, what do we mean? So you hit on it there when you mention your junior search history, because you probably have heard the term Neolithic and it's in the back of your mind. You're going, what is that again? Now, it's an era in time. And so this is about 5,000 years ago, and we're talking about actually the tail end of the Stone Age. But the phrase you will most associate with it is the first farmers. So this is a point in our history of our ancestors of prehistoric humans where we're moving from Stone Age and sort of a nomadic existence to a time when there's becoming settlements and villages and people using Uh, cultural practices and technology that we would still relate to these days. So domesticated plants, tillage, um, domesticated animals, and so becoming literally farmers, but still using those stone tools, no metal yet. They're gathering communities, they're um, having ceremonies and rituals, and they're very much tied more to the seasons and the land. And this is what the Neolithic era is. Another word, so glossary alert again that you will have heard is megalithic. Great, was next on this. Go. <laughs> megalithic isn't an era. Megalithic is actually to do with all of the monuments that um, are basically constructed out of stones and large stones and it doesn't necessarily just tie itself to the Neolithic era. Megalithic, if we were to break it down, is literally large stones. I mean, you'd hardly break it out. <laughs> Mega, you kind of get it, right? Um, so we could be talking about anything here from passage tombs to wedge tombs to monoliths, where are, which are individual standing stones. In terms of Newgrange, so that's kind of your headline word that we're thinking of, everyone's aware of. They're thinking of the Newgrange um, winter solstice ceremony where people um, are trying to get in to the tomb for that particular um, event where the sun shines down through a, a box uh, above the, uh, the the entrance to Newgrange Passage Tomb on winter solstice day in December and it shines and illuminates down the passage and illuminates the chamber, the burial chamber in the centre of the tomb. But Newgrange is a passage tomb, okay? And it's a passage tomb which is one or more burial chambers covered with earth or stones, uh, which can sometimes be called a kern. And there's access to the burial chambers through narrow, large stone line passages. And Newgrange is one passage tomb, and there are two others, which are Nouth and Douth. And these are, I suppose, the three best known megalithic, there's that word again, monuments within a whole complex, which is called Bruna Boigne, which is a massive acreage area 
nestled in the bend of the River Boyne, somewhere between Drogheda and Slane. And it is a World Heritage Site as designated by UNESCO. So we're not just talking about these three starry, uh, um, you know, central characters of Newgrange, North and South. There are hundreds and hundreds of monuments Littered, And I use the word littered because they are all over that site, everything from henges, which are these embanked um, sort of circular uh, enclosures that could have been used for open air ceremonies um, to kind of different types of tombs, um, portals, portal dolmens and, and um, wedge tombs and so on. And Bruna is the whole area among which you'll find these. So back to your initial question about how are we still finding these? It's when are we not going to find stuff? Because there is so much there. Also, the the amount of activity in that area spans not just across the Neolithic age, which is a certain amount, but pre-Neolithic and post-Neolithic across 6,000 years. So we have 6,000 years of human activity with people leaving behind them their tools, their burial sites, their community centres, their post holes left over from where they kept their pigs and their sheep or whatever else they had. And you can imagine that on a landscape that has been built upon, that has had more agriculture on top. And then you're talking about layers and layers of history. So my question would actually be, when are we ever going to stop discovering new things about it? Never, I hope. And if there's a hierarchy then, so if if Newgrange, Nowth and Douth are the the stars, the headline grabbers, does that mean that the passage tombs are the most important and then there's you kind of go down through a list of the other things like you mentioned like cairns and stuff in terms of our i suppose public awareness of them in terms of size the passage tombs are going to grab your attention if you think of newgrange newgrange is the one that has been tarted up because newgrange has been completely renovated and restored we'll say it's sort of almost like an artist's impression of what it might have looked like that white quartz belt around it which we do know to be accurate because there was white quartz found on the site but that has been totally renovated and remastered so to speak um, my personal favourite the Queen for me is actually Nauth uh, because within the Brunabonia area um, we have the single largest assemblage of megalithic art in the whole of Western Europe if you can imagine that and 45% of that is around and in the Nauth uh, passage tomb but Nauth keeps her secrets a little more to herself um, she's not been uh, given a complete overhaul and I think is just really fascinating place to, to soak in what it might have felt like to be there. And then Douth is slightly smaller, but it has a similar winter solstice alignment as Newgrange. So it has its own kind of interesting secrets to, to give up to us. But these are telling us something specific. And visually, that's the biggest thing you can see. Um, but things like monoliths, which are standing stones, as we might kind of more commonly call them, there's about 10,000 of those that we even know of around the whole of Ireland. And some people will think about their cattle scratching up against one in a field and so on. So there is a wide range of of megalithic monuments. And yes, some of them are going to grab the headlines more. All of them are important if you think about bring it all together as a big picture of Ireland and what we call Ireland now, what that was like 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, the amount of activity on the land, the idea that fields were busy, that there were even fields, that they were building them, that they were um, creating barriers and enclosures and so on. So what it does is actually none of them are unimportant in terms of building up that big picture. But in terms of the ones you're going to take a picture beside, yes, you're thinking passage tombs. The, what, what, what you have to think about is the construction of these things. We're talking about stone tools. Can you imagine reefing 
massive pieces of stone out of quarries. And the thing about uh, Bruna Bonia is that they found a lot of the materials were quarried elsewhere, miles and miles and miles away. And possibly this is all theoretically strapped to a barge, brought down the boyne and, and reefed into place by God knows how many people. I'd like to say that they're Ireland's pyramids. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about the time frame, but certainly in terms of la- being labour intensive. So that's why we should be very proud of it. Um, and I think that you can kind of understand how we could only be scratching the surface of what's there. And what then did we find, what's the, this most recent find um, that the experts working at Newgrange discovered in recent weeks? So we have 40, and again, we're talking about figures here are massive around this whole Bruna Bonia site, 40 previously unknown monuments. Now, these are ranging across a number of time periods as well as constructions. Uh, so we're not talking about the same thing. We're not talking about 40 passage tombs or 40 standing stones. We everything from Neolithic houses shown up by, you know, the posts that were in the ground to mark them out uh, to early medieval farmsteads. So we're really talking a very wide range of items here, a very wide range of buildings. um, And there's a lot of work to be done to interpret those further. These are all located beside Newgrange. So again, while Newgrange is over there posing for selfies, we have all these previously unknown monuments just whiling the time away underground waiting to be discovered. Jessica, what do we know so far about what these discoveries? Well, if I can be a bit mysterious with you, actually, what was discovered last week were a series of anomalies. So this is what the technical term is, geophysical anomalies. This summer's work is a, a series of uh, seasons of geophysical survey that would have been carried out in the Brunaboyne of the wider World Heritage Site. I think, gosh, the World Heritage Site is about 3,300 hectares. And within that, it's kind of living rural farmland. So people have been surveying uh, field by field and stretch by stretch. So um, the the latest season of geophysical survey work um, has uncovered more of what we call at this stage anomalies. And they're anomalies because they're blobs, (laughs) the landscape. They shouldn't normally there, i.e. they're not probably natural features or some sort of man-made feature. And it's only when we get down to the interpretation of those anomalies, so comparing them with sites that we've already dug, um, and we know the shape of them and comparing them, you know, the morphology of these mon- monuments, we can start saying, mm, yeah, that's probably a Neolithic monument or that might be a medieval one or that's maybe a Bronze Age monument. So at the moment, they're very much anomalies. Um, and when we get down to interpreting them, possibly even a little bit of excavation in the future, that's when you really get to put a date on them and kind of say, yeah, that's exactly what we have there. How do you discover these blobs? <laughs> like, what's the process? Okay. So um, so I mentioned geophysical survey, uh, which is actually a suite of different techniques to enable you to sense beneath the ground. So um, you were, um, you mentioned in your intro um, just a few minutes ago uh, the, the crop marks that were discovered last year, and that's through kind of aerial survey and drone surveys. So that's people just kind of taking photographs above the ground in a way or filming it and um, doing that sort of survey. But geophysical is very much ground penetration. So you're using things like radar signals, electromagnetic pulses, and they're picking up on changes in the soil moisture. If you have cut features like ditches or they're bouncing off resistant things like stone walls or stone cairns um, and things like that. So they're giving you a sense of what's below the ground. Um, and that what you were again mentioning in your, in your intro, this is part of the reason why we keep discovering them, because a lot of them aren't visible 
um, by aerial survey. So you can't see them in the crop marks. You can't see them when you fly over. They're not visible above ground. So there's no lumps and bumps in the landscape. You can only see them when you, you send signals, either, you know, radar or magnetic pulses through the ground and you pick it up that way. Who is doing this work? It, it right. sounds incredibly, <laughs> it is. Um, obviously, advanced technology and, uh, and complicated. And obviously, you're, you mentioned there, it's living landscape. These are like, they're, this, while it's a protected site, it's just still normal farmland. So who's going in and doing these? Exactly. Services? So it, it's, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. It is by its very nature quite, or can be quite a convoluted process because this is an active living landscape. Um, landowners work these fields, have animals in these fields. So you have to get permission, not only from them, but you have to get permission and um, licenses to survey from the National Monuments um, section. So, you know, these, these field seasons or campaigns are built up year on year and then you kind of add to the data set. Um, in terms of the kit, um, this a lot of the work has been carried out by the Roman um, Germanic Commission. They're based in Germany um, and they've been uh, collaborating with my colleagues here in UCD um, to kind of build these fields or seasons uh, up and to kind of to, to tackle this landscape bit by bit. Um, you need, yeah, you need a lot of kit. You need uh, a lot of kind of wide-ranging things. So they've got lots of fantastic stuff that can cover huge areas of land in one day. So they can actually get quite a lot done in relatively short windows of time, so maybe two or three weeks. But then, of course, that's all, I suppose, digital data. You need to process that. Um, you need to feed it through computers. You need to, you know, manipulate it so you can see what it is and what the patterns are. So there's also processing time. And at the end of that, there's interpretation time where you're looking at... Um, as I said, comparable monuments that you know the data of and going, oh, that looks a bit like that, that's probably that, or look at the way that kind of leads up there, but it stops, you know, da, da, da. so fitting it together in its landscape sense. So yes, it's been a collaborative effort uh, with University College Dublin and the Roman Germanic Commission in Germany. Susan, you mentioned earlier mm. about um, farmers and, and uh, that kind of starting to learn a little bit more. Do these discoveries obviously there's so much work to be done afterwards, so when will we eventually start learning about what has what was being done to the, the farmland back then or are we just adding to what we already know? Or We're adding to a stock of knowledge, I think. And and if you're coming from the lay person and what we have heard and what we haven't heard, I think it gives an indication of possibly how much has yet to be discovered and also how much has to be con communicated um, to the wider public. And in some ways, there's, I suppose, people think about archaeology and they're thinking Indiana Jones stuff and the talking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pharaohs and Egyptology and so on. And in Ireland, we have such a wealth, but it's a wealth that's not so much to do, I'd imagine, with flashy artefacts and more to do with our understanding of where we come from, how we get the practices that we have. When I mentioned Nauth earlier, they have a remarkable stone that has what appears to be a lunar calendar on it. And if you're living your life by the seasons back then, it's really important to you. Now we have Evelyn Cusack and all the other fab people uh, or actually maybe Evelyn isn't doing it anymore but on Met Aaron and mm. you know people are religiously tuning in to, to hear the weather forecast well you know this is this is the Joanna um, and the Evelyn of Neolithic times so I do think we're learning more and um, I do think that what will be really important is that communication so that people understand the importance of these excavations perhaps why they need to be resourced um, and also explaining it to people whose lives they directly impact. So we talked about the landowners and so on, because I think you had a great phrase there earlier, um, living landscapes mm -hmm. and, and basically that um, the Neolithics were 
doing their thing at their time. But we can't ride roughshod over people who are also trying to do their thing in their time, which is the current situation. Yeah, a matter of priority. Sharon, I just wanted because we talked a lot about the discoveries last year and um, just to try and explain to people that um, Jessica has done a good job of showing us what has happened in the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. But how is that different to what was discovered last year when there was a a drought and and people were flying drones over and discovering these cool like patterns in in the the land? Last last summer was certainly a remarkable summer and it was great Mm -hmm. for archaeology because it gave us some great, very mm-hmm. positive public exposure, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it was also something that, that people could get involved in. So basically what happened last summer, as we were all painfully aware, there was a severe drought, which meant a severe shortage of water. And obviously that affected how the crops were growing. Um, now, this happens most years that the crops are going to be affected by what's underneath the ground, the same features in some cases that uh, were picked up by the geophysical survey. But things like just for example, you have a ditch underneath the ground. Now it's all been ploughed over and you can't see anything on the surface. But because there used to be a ditch there, the soil that filled that ditch up is different to the rest of the soil and the crop will grow differently over that. So you might get it, I mean, sometimes you can see this from the ground. It might be, you know, three, four centimetres taller than the surrounding crop. And these are the crop marks. Um, sometimes it ripens at a slightly different rate. So it might be slightly greener over a ditch than in the rest of the field. And anyone who saw these photographs would have seen that kind of that. That's why we were able to see these monuments. And it was just the extremity, I suppose, of the of the dryness last year that made so many more features stand out than normally would. And there is the added uh, factor to that is that last year you had that which, um, you know, as you said, will happen in more extreme weather cases. The last drought that was that severe in Ireland was in 1976. And the difference is we didn't have drones. <laughs> we didn't have photographers. And I know Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland, he and his friend uh, Ken Williams of Shadows and Stone, they were the guys who went out one evening together, just coincidentally even met up there. They didn't mean to meet. And they both on the same evening discovering the features that you mentioned because the crop was growing slightly greener and slightly taller in these areas where they retained trace moisture from where there had been posts thousands of years ago, um, they both they, they discovered two henges that were close to uh, a previously known rather large henge known as Site P in that dry way that uh, <laughs> early archaeologists would yeah. have used to label <laughs> things. Yeah. You know, I think we need to find some more sexy labels <laughs> here to, to make people more attracted to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a big difference too, is that and, and maybe something we have to think about in terms of amateur archaeology and being careful about mm-hmm. how we're maybe excavating or, or People are having access to these monuments, but these guys were have the license for their drones and they were yeah. they're very into history. So they knew what to do. How protected. So it has that UNESCO um, status, but how protected is the land around there? Like what what aren't people allowed to do because we are still finding this stuff? Well, a, a lot of the monuments in um, the recorded, the known about monuments within the World Heritage Site are scheduled monuments. Um, so they will be on a list. And if you're a landowner or a purchaser, um, your obligation is to check out that list and to see what's on it and to know. And, and the, the legislation is clear on that. It's your responsibility to inform yourself about that. So if there's anything planning related, disturbance related, you then have to um, take account of that in your planning permissions. And that planning permission, as we know, can be granted or not granted, or there might be certain measures put in place to say, OK, you, you can do that thing that you want to do, but you need to check out this archaeology. First, and that's quite a lot of how quite a lot of archaeology gets excavated on the island of Ireland. It's these mitigations that are put in place as part of the planning process, whether it's a motorway or a pipeline or a, a private dwelling. So, yeah, so the, there has that that 
uh, statutory protection there. Um, in terms of kind of the, the the wider zone, I guess if somebody was planning a development, the, the the planning officers would also take into account that this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and as such as that three thousand three hundred hectares I mentioned has a value altogether. So if you're going to throw up something here and throw up something there, that has a visual impact, for example, on the setting of the monuments and how people experience the landscape. So that's an another factor as it were it mightn't be that you know a strip of land has a monument on it but it's part of the same kind of visual environment so you're trying to protect that as well mm -hmm. um and i know other comparable sites like um the neolithic world heritage site up in the orkney islands where that they've encountered um legal challenges that people wanting to build wind farms and people arguing well that would have a negative impact on the monument setting so these are all considerations you mentioned a motorway there so say if there was a, a public interest in having a motorway but it did interrupt one of these sites maybe bruna Boyne, or maybe something that we haven't discovered yet what takes priority yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, and there have been two or, well, one and one planned motorway at the west and the east of the World Heritage Site. So the M1 nearly clips the World Heritage Site. Um, and you've got um, the proposed route to the N2 um, or the extension of that going through through Slane. And that keeps on coming up again. And because there are um, terrible traffic issues around Slane and, it, you know, it's a busy place. So there's, again, it's, it's, it, it's that balance of local communities protecting the heritage and those sorts of things. But if... I suppose from the, a World Heritage Site protection perspective, if there was a, a motorway plan that had a, a, a visual impact, a strong impact, disturbance, that would then be raised with um, UNESCO, and you know, and they can, would consider delisting that site or deinscribing it. So if if it's seen as as a threat to its listing or the reasons why it was inscribed in the first place, they'd have to con take that under consideration. So there are. There are bodies to keep an eye on that. I mean, I think it's important to point out that not just for World Heritage Sites, but the legislation in this country is very robust when it comes to heritage and comes to protecting. I mean, all sites are protected. But obviously, when you're building something like a motorway, which is going across a huge swathe of landscape, you're going to encounter archaeology. There are going to be some of these particularly subsurface features that we haven't found yet until we manage to geophase the whole country, yeah. <laughs> which is not going to happen yeah. any day soon. Um, you know, so you're going to encounter surprises like that. And where the way the legislation stands on it is, you know, archaeology is involved right from the beginning of the planning process. So they will have a number of possible routes for any road or motorway or pipeline. And archaeology is one of the factors that they, that they take into account when they are selecting a route. Um, and then a certain amount of excavation will have to take place. But anything that is on that route that is going to essentially be destroyed by the motorway or pipeline or whatever uh, has to be fully excavated um, and written up and, and recorded. Well, actually, a good example of that is is the Woodstown Viking site. So that was um, proposed by Pass Around Waterford City. Um, they had the number of routes, as Sharon's just mentioned. Um, and in the testing phase, so when they're doing the test trenching, looking for archaeology, potential archaeology, they were encountering an awful lot of Viking Age remains. And it was decided that actually the site, the proposed route, looks like we are going to hit some big Viking Age site here they thought it was a better idea to reroute the motorway slightly. Mm. So in that case, it's that balance of um, protection of what's there, but also economic considerations. So the, the amount of money needed to fully resolve that site, so to dig it, to do all the post-excavation analyses, was probably more than the cost of just... Just shifting the, the a little way. Yeah, so, the, so it's, it's basically, it is a balancing act of all these considerations, mm -hmm. and archaeology is just part of that decision-making process. 
Yeah, Susan, one of the things I'm still a little bit unclear of is, is is digging up sites a good thing from an archaeological point of view or is it something that we should avoid doing if possible? Well, I mean, if you expose it to air and, you know, to, to the general elements, then you're immediately putting something at risk that has survived for a long time precisely because it has been covered and so on. Um, and yet at the same time, we'll see that there are things that... A great example is the excavation at Douth Hole last year, which came about because of precisely the reasons Jessica's outlining. It's in a particularly protected zone and they were looking to renovate the beautiful house that's there, Douth Hole and um, New Grange Farm and so on. And they came across this passage tomb, or at least the extent of it, and they realised things like the hall itself had been built half on it so that the basement of the hall where servants were clipping down getting bottles of sherry or whatnot <laughs> or whatever hundreds of years ago um, the walls were actually taken in part of the passages of the passage tomb and they uncovered one of the most extraordinary pieces found of megalithic art in that whole area for quite a long time and so in that situation what's actually happened I think is a nice uh, correlation between um, uncovering something that we wouldn't have known about. Yes, it had to be taken apart to a certain amount, but they removed debris so we could actually see it a lot better. I went on a site visit and, and it was extraordinary to see. But as regards the actual, like Douth Hall and what they're trying to do there, it actually could be quite good for them in terms of tourism and people wanting to stay because all of a sudden you've got this this um, layer and layer and layer of history on the site and it's only going to add to the appeal. But yeah, in a lot of places like the scenarios we were talking about where it's not about a beautiful heritage site but rather about infrastructure going in, mm-hmm. then it is a case of digging up, recording it and then building over it just down the road here from where the journal is. We've got some building work going on, not ours, and they uncovered a beautiful Dutch-style uh, old Billy House house um, and we, we saw it going past um, uh, and looked at how beautiful the foundations were just that idea that it was here you know so many hundred years ago and they are just covering it over and having to build on it because the requirement for keeping Dublin city centre going as a place where people live and work has to supersede mm. the protection of a small foundation. And as far as I mean you're asking is, is excavation a good thing I mean yes excavation as a means of getting information from a site is a wonderful thing, but something all archaeologists are very, very conscious of, because it's drilled into us from day one, I think, Mm -hmm. is that it's also a just completely destructive process. You don't get to re-excavate a site. Once you've excavated, you have a huge responsibility during that process to record everything that you do, because no one else is going to go back and correct what you've done if you do it wrong or if you forget to record something. Um, and that, I suppose, answers the question we were talking about before about, you know, why, why aren't all these sites getting excavated? You know, surely the archaeologists have found something, so they want to get in and dig it up and find everything they want to find. But we're, we're very conscious of this, that it's a destructive thing. And to hark back to what I was saying earlier again, methods are always improving. There's always new, wa- new ways of finding information from what you take out of the ground. Um, and I suppose that you can compare the, the megalithic sites we're talking about, you know, these stone monuments. You can excavate a stone monument like Newgrange and still be left with a structure and something to look at and take the information from the soils and bones or whatever you find, you'd find in these megalithic uh, structures. But an awful lot of sites in this country are not megalithic. You know, you're left with post holes and trenches and ditches that you can take soil out of and you might get soil samples and environmental information as well as artefacts. But once you've excavated them, they're gone. 
Yeah. Is there ever yeah. disputes in academia about, oh, oh no, we should, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we should wait another 10 years because mm. the technology will be better and we'll know more. So let's leave it alone. Or do people want their name on the, the discovery? And Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a, a region like the Bend of the Boyne and Newgrange that, you know, it does have that, that shininess. It's kind of like our Stonehenge, I suppose. So, yes, mm. there is always a thirst for knowledge and always to kind of cover more and it makes yeah it makes the headlines and you know it gets the the column inches um but you don't have to do that by digging holes i mean the a project i'm running at the moment i've just kind of a year into it um called the passage tomb people is is looking at those very questions these communities and what these people how they lived um but it's it's doing so through already excavated remains so i'm going back to excavated archives like newgrange and out and other passage tombs looking at the human remains, looking at the animal remains, looking at the pottery, stuff that has been carefully recorded and carefully curated in our wonderful institutions, National Museum and other places. And we can go back with newly developed archaeological science techniques and extract, you know, molecular level information from these things that can tell us huge amounts about diet, mobility, um, disease. Um, What's the most interesting yeah. thing you've found out since you started? Well, I've, <laughs> the data hasn't started to come, hasn't started to come in yet. But you, like for example, looking at a, a tooth, an animal tooth, you can you can potentially tell the birthing season of that animal. So, so were they extending artificially extending the birthing season to kind of generate surplus milk? And um, has that animal moved in the landscape from where it was brought up? And um, what it's being fed on, things like that. So really detailed things about from like thousands of years ago. Yeah, That's, yeah. Yeah, it's all I mean, enamel is really resilient material. So, yeah, and, and the, the techniques are developing every time this cool stuff. Um, if the archaeologists, the academics, the people planning the motorway or the stadium or whatever mm. it is they're building have decided, OK, uh, excavation might be a way to go. What other barriers could be there that it doesn't happen? Because obviously a lot of things haven't have a lot of things haven't been dug up yet. It's a tricky, tricky enough question. There are a number of reasons why a site might not be excavated in that kind of a scenario where you're planning for a motorway. If it's a very substantial, large site that is going to be very, very expensive, it could severely impact on the budget for the motorway. So it might actually be better to move the motorway rather than excavate the site. It does not happen very often um, because archaeology is involved at such an early stage. Um, Generally speaking, why a site doesn't get excavated you know, if it's not development-led, excavation is research-based. If, if, you know, if you just are an archaeologist and you want to go and excavate a moated site, you can't just sort of write, fill out a form with National Monuments and say, right, I want to dig this site this summer, I'm license eligible, and sign it. You know, you have to have a very robust research agenda. You have to sort of say, look, I have some very specific questions. I want to find out about these sorts of sites you know, please may I. <laughs> um, and and that, that's how it yeah, works. I mean, it's not easy to get, yeah, sorry, it's not easy to get permission to excavate. No, they look at, they might, you know, we use the example of a motorcycle or ring for it. They might say, well, we've excavated a thousand of them already. We kind of already know their date and the, their, you know, the range and the extent. So probably, and we again, we talked about the, archaeology being a destructive enterprise so I'd say the cost of you destroying that is greater than the things you could potentially find out because we already have a pretty good idea da, da, da. so yeah you have to present pretty decent research questions yeah. and obviously money comes into this as well exactly. the, yeah. the cost of excavation yes. and then generally who pays for the ones that are done 
Deve- well, yes, for January. anything development-led, development developer page developer. For research stuff, um, if, if you're attached to the university, it would be um, usually kind of a national funding scheme. Mm. There's various grants and things available. Mm. The Royal Irish Academy yeah. have an excavation scheme. Um, I mean, an example, I suppose, that was in the news the other week, um, Matthew Stout's excavation mm. up beside Drogheda, Bobeck, okay. um, they had got funding from the FBD Trust, um, so there are various grants that are available, but again, that's a process. And for them, they will also want to know what are you going to get out of this if we're going to fund it. And you have to, it's excavation plus post-excavation. So you Absolutely. have to demonstrate you have put enough funds aside to adequately analyse your remains. You it's just out. not about finding the cool no, stuff. No, exactly. And then running out of money and go, oh, sorry, we no. can't actually. And I think that's something yeah. that people... Yeah. And, I suppose mm. it's an important point to make. People think archaeology is, and archaeologists are into digging and we're into finding stuff and discovering stuff and, and that end of things. But actually a huge amount of what we do is about preservation. Preservation is really important and that's a big reason not to excavate a site unless you have a good question to ask it. Jessica, just to finish up, um, we know the government has been working on developing a kind of strategy, like an overarching strategy to make sure we're treating all the things we've discussed in this episode sorry, I'm still saying things, all these amazing historical finds um, to make sure that we're treating them in the right way. Um, What is that strategy uh, and how will it be implemented? There is currently an initiative that the uh, Department of Culture, Heritage and Gaeltacht are rolling out. It's called Heritage Ireland 2030. Um, They had a massive public consultation on that earlier in the year and and they're just kind of going through all the the submissions. They had over 2,000 submissions from members of the public, um, all the sectors, heritage sectors. And the three strong themes that came out of that, and I think it's a really positive message um, for Heritage in Ireland, it was partnership, leadership and local communities. So it's about all... It's about all of us. It's not about wagging the finger and saying you can't do this, you can't do that. We have to value our heritage and be equal partners in protecting, preserving heritage. And it's that balance as we're talking about, you know, people have to live, people have to enjoy, um, have the right to enjoy their environment to get kind of well-being out of their cultural and natural heritage. So it's it's very much a partnership. And I know that's what the, the department want to see it as too. So... That's a really good positive note to end on. Thank you very much, Sharon, Jessica and Susan. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was produced by assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan with Christine Bohan as executive producer and Aoife Barry as producer. Big thanks to Susan, Sharon and Jessica for their brilliant contributions. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last time, we performed our Best Public Service Act and explained the backstop. There are also other Brexit episodes in the catalogue, including what a no-deal Brexit could do to our weekly food shop. If you're enjoying these shows, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.